We're going to be starting this morning in the book of First Peter, and we're going to spend some time between uh, now and December in First Peter, and then we'll pick up with First Peter again in the new year. And just looking forward to uh, digging into this book with you. And uh, we're going to start this morning uh, at the almost at the end of the book, First Peter five verse twelve. Um, and this is where we get the theme for the book. Um, most people believe that Peter probably wrote the book about 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Um, a lot of people believe he was writing from Rome, although it's not um, nothing conclusive there, but quite possibly he was in Rome when he wrote the letter. And he was writing to uh, believers, probably Greek, both Greek, Roman, and Jewish believers. Uh, but 1 Peter 5 verse 12 uh, says this, it says, by Sylvanus, or some translation might say by Silas, uh, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And so we eventually we'll end up there at, at the end of the book. But we start there to say, Peter identifies here at the end of the letter. He says, I have written this letter to you so that you would know the true grace of God and that you would stand firm in it. So this is, as we go through the book of Peter, we're going to be learning about the grace of God in our lives. And it's a great, um, it's a great message. When we, talk about, um, when we talk about grace, we're just talking about God gives us things that we don't deserve. Um, every single day, God gives us things that we don't deserve. And so as we go through the book, that's, what we're, that's sort of the theme that we're going to be looking at um, over and over again. God's grace, some would say his uh, unmerited favor, his undeserved kindness. And, uh, and that's what we are, I'm excited to be studying it with you. I hope that you will be excited to uh, dig into that, and we'll learn together about this grace of God in our lives. So um, I'm going to pr- start with a word of prayer, and uh, we're going to dig into this. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for um, just your grace in our lives, Lord. And I pray that as we study this book, we would have a, a deeper understanding of what that means, what God's grace in our lives mean. What does that look like? Um, how do we experience that? What are the things that um, just your, your love and your kindness and your mercy in our lives that we don't deserve. What does that look like and how does that affect how we live? Lord, I pray that we'd come to a better understanding of that. Lord, I also just do want to lift up uh, Gordon and Lori Price and the other uh, Samaritans uh, purse volunteers that are, are, are doing storm relief. Lord, uh, um, keep them safe. Lord, we ask that you give them great opportunity for ministry and that you would be able to, to share the, the, your, your love that's in their hearts with the, the, the folks that they're ministering to. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe no better example of God's grace in the scripture is our salvation. Would you agree with me on that? We don't deserve it. There's just no way around it, but God uh, God saves us in his grace and his mercy. And Ephesians 2 verses 4 and 5 talk about this. Uh, we're going to look at a couple, of, a couple of ways that God puts his grace towards us. And then we'll look in 1 Peter. But it says, God, being rich in mercy, he doesn't treat us the way we deserve to be treated, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so even though we, were, we weren't alive in Christ, we were dead, we were living a, a life of sin, 
that Christ made us alive together, or God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This is an undeserved thing. We were sinners, but God saved us. And that's something that we uh, should celebrate every day when we get up. God, I'm part of your family, and I don't deserve it. That is your grace in my life. Of course, uh, later in chapter 2, he would say, "Is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God that no one should boast. God's, uh, I think, number one showing of grace in our lives is the fact that he would save us when we don't deserve it. As Christians, we further experience his grace in every day, but one of the ways we experience his grace is he gives us gifts that we can serve him with and we can serve one another with. First um, Peter 4 verse 10, uh, he's talking about spiritual gifts and he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very varied grace. So God gives us these gifts so that then we can serve others. And by serving others, we experience God's grace. So when, when I get a word of encouragement, I saw Bill at the Mexican restaurant. Is it a Mexican restaurant, Bill? It was. He, he, he came over, he said hello, it was a word of encouragement. That's God's grace in my life. A fellow believer would encourage me. That's just God showering his grace. I don't deserve that, but that's how he treats us. So he gives each one of us gifts, and that's part of God's grace in our lives. First, in, in chapter 5, Peter would go on. And he says, he's talking about a future grace that we will receive. Again, another undeserved thing that God will give us is eternity in heaven with him. It says, after you have suffered a little while, um, and when we get to heaven, we'll look back and we'll see that all of life on earth was suffering, even the best moments. Um, but it says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, the God of all grace, the God who gives us things that we don't deserve, he calls us to his eternal glory in Christ, he will restore us, he will confirm us, he will strengthen us, he will establish us. That's God treating us in a way that we don't deserve to be treated. That's God's grace in our life. And so as we go through the, the book of 1 Peter, um, this, we'll talk about it this week, we'll talk about it next week. We'll see the God, God's grace in our lives through our salvation. Uh, we see God's grace in our lives and how we are to... Um, interact in our interpersonal relationships. We'll see it in the way that he has loved us, in the way that he allows us to grow in him is part of his grace. Um, even when we suffer, we'll see towards the end of the book, the things, the, the hard times in our life is God working in us still his grace. And then, of course, we talked about the fact that we've been given gifts in order to serve one another, and that's God's grace working through us to other people. And so um, I'm, this is, these are just kind of some of the themes that we're going to talk about as we work through uh, the book of First Peter. But today we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you'll, you'll, you'll have noticed by now when you read, a, especially the New Testament letters, they introduce themselves right off the bat. When we write a letter, we sign it off at the, at the end of the letter. They introduce themselves right off the top. And this is Peter introducing himself as the writer. And of course, Peter was one of the 12 disciples. And uh, just a few, um, just a refresher on who, who this Peter was. Peter and his brother Andrew were the first two disciples Jesus called, along with James and John. They were in their boats. They were fishing. Jesus saw them. He said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And we see in the book of John that Peter's 
birth name was actually Simon. His parents named him Simon, and it was Jesus who said in John 142, he said, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. So Cephas is the uh, Aramaic word for rock, and then Peter would be the Greek uh, equivalent. So we, we call him Peter because the New Testament was written in Greek, uh, but Jesus called him Cephas in, in Aramaic, that he was a rock. We know as we read through the Gospels that Peter was a leader, sometimes to uh, the glory of God and sometimes to Peter's detriment, right? Um, we remember him um, boldly declaring when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? You know, the disciples were silent, but Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Um, it was Peter, when Jesus was walking on the waters, Peter that got out of the boat in faith to walk on water with Jesus. Uh, Peter went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. He, 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 kind of, he held a privileged position. Of course, like I said, to his detriment, he was bold. He, he took action. And when Jesus was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember it was Peter that drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Um, it was also Peter that denied Jesus later that night. But it was Peter that Jesus went back to and said, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. God had a plan for his life. And of course, after the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, it was Peter who, was, who stood up and preached that powerful message of salvation. And thousands came uh, to the saving knowledge of Jesus that day. So we have to agree that Peter played a, an important role in the early church. And for the, the men that have been going to Pastor Jerry's Bible study on Thursday morning, been working through the book of Acts, and you'll recall the first third anyways of the book, maybe a little bit more towards half the book is all about Peter and how, he, how the Lord used him to advance the church. So he was, um, he was a prominent um, person in the early church. Now, I've got, I told first service, I've got two little asides that I'm going to do this morning because I think these are, these are important things. I think they're worth just stopping and looking at while we're here in these first two verses of Peter. The question is, was Peter the first pope? And I uh, want to just talk about that for a second, because if you have Catholic friends or, or other, other friends, they, they may believe that Peter was the first pope. Um, and I think we've clearly identified that Peter had a place of prominence in the, in the, in the early church, that God used him uh, powerfully, him along with um, Paul and James and John, these were probably some of the, the, the key leaders in the, in the early church. But as we look at, at Peter, he introduces himself several times, and he never introduces himself as the Pope, or introduces himself as the, the, main, the, the chief apostle. Um, in fact, we already, we're, we're looking this morning at 1 Peter chapter 1, he just says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus, not the apostle of Jesus, or the most important apostle of Jesus, but just an apostle of Jesus. Um, in the book of 2 Peter, he introduces himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So um, the servant would, would hold a lowly position, not a position of esteem. He wasn't trying to uh, puff himself up. Um, and in 1 Peter chapter 5, he describes himself as a fellow elder of the church. So not as the elder of the church, but a fellow elder of the church. Um, so Peter does not introduce himself as, as the Pope. 
or as holding a, a special place. The Bible never describes Peter as having a, a place above any of the other apostles. Um, but there is this belief. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 16 just for a couple minutes this morning to say, well, where does this belief come from and, and what sh- how should we be thinking about it? So uh, Matthew chapter 16 Verse 13, it says, Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. So they're having, they're walking along, they're having the discussion. And Jesus asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Like, who do, who do people say that I am? Is the question. And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, and some people just say you're one of the prophets. So Jesus asked this points the question a little bit more directly to them. He says, but who do you say that I am? And it's Peter that answers. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, this is the name that Jesus had given him. You are Cephas, you are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so you see this, uh, you are Peter or you are a rock and on this rock, I will build my church. And, and um, so this is, this is where this idea that Peter was the first pope or part of that thinking comes from this verse. So if we were reading the, this verse in Greek though, it would say, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. So Jesus is doing a play on words. Petros is, the, is, the, the, is a male name in Greek. Petra would be a rock, like you would pick a rock up off the ground. So two different things, but Jesus is using a play on words. So the question becomes, for us this morning, is Jesus saying, I will build my church on the man Peter... Or is Jesus saying, I will build my church on this declaration that Peter has just made? We go back to verse 16. Peter has just said this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I believe that when Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church, he's referring to this statement that Peter just made. Peter's just a, Peter was a man. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't infallible. No church. This church is, was not built on Pastor Jerry. This church wasn't built on Preacher Kennersley. It's certainly not built on me, but it's built on this truth that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. And so this is where this would be, um, I think, a better interpretation of this verse. But for those of you who may have friends who would say Peter was the first pope, they might go to this verse as a reason why. Now you have, you have something that you can uh, talk to them about. So, Back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter identifies himself. He's, he's one of the apostles of Jesus. And he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these are or identified as elect exiles. Um, your translation may say chosen foreigners, uh, may say pilgrims, aliens, strangers, sojourners. This word's actually translated a bunch of different ways depending on what translation that you have. And the idea is that these people were not living in a place that was their home. 
Now, there's a couple ways to look at it. It could be that they're just saying, well, they're, these were the Jewish people and they were dispersed and they, were not, they weren't living in Israel anymore and they were living all over. And that may be partially true, but as we go through the letter, we'll see that he, was, he had a Greek audience in mind as well. And this is where they would have lived. And I think also uh, one of the themes as we go through the book is that this earth is not our home. For any Christian, in any time, we are living in a temporary place. It's interesting. Interesting thing. You think when? Um, well, I came to to the United States in 2006, and and the lingo that we use is that I had a green card. Well, the technical term is I had a resident alien card. All right, I was an alien of the United States. That was my tech. That that was my designation when I came to the country. I have my citizenship now, which I'm thankful for. But an alien or sojourner or stranger, it's someone who is living somewhere and that is not their permanent home. And that's true for us as Christians. This is not our home. This isn't our, this isn't our best life. This isn't our last life. This is a temporary life until we get to heaven to be with him permanently. So when you go to work tomorrow and when you uh, you know, you're having difficulty with your boss or it's just the same old, same old. That's a temporary thing. And you think, well, no, it's not temporary. It's for like the next 40 years, the next 20 years, the next 10. I don't know how close you are to retirement. We will, one day we will look back and we will say, boy, that really was a temporary life. And we have great things to look forward to. And we'll see, as we go through the book, we'll see Peter um, reminding his writers the fact that they are sojourners. They are exiles. They are uh, strangers. And we need to be remind, continue to be reminded of that as well. And we'll see, um, Peter talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ later in chapter one. He talks about the day of visitation in chapter two. He talks about the end of all things in chapter four, along with when Christ's glory will be revealed. And then in chapter five, he talks about when the chief shepherd appears. So as, as we look through the book, Peter's going to continually point us to that day when Jesus will return and we will be with him forever because our life here is just temporary. All right, so depending on your translation, mine, as we read here, um, it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, possibly your translation would just say, to those who are exiles or those who are strangers of the dispersions, and they'll put this word elect or chosen at the beginning of verse 2. Um, the reason for that, the best is I'm just kind of studying through, I think Peter's trying to emphasize that, the, that those who are elect, that those are chosen, were these ones who were dispersed, but that also uh, what he writes in verse 2 is attached to these who are elect. So let's read verse 2 together. To those who are elect, or to those who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I want to stop for a minute and look at this word um, elect. It may be in your Bible chosen. Um, it is a Greek word that just means elected. Right? We're, we're about to have an election here in our country, and this is not the same, but the idea is the same. You go on election day, or if you go early, you make your choice. And so when we read in the Bible that we are chosen or that we are elected, that's what it means. We have been 
chosen. We have been selected. But I want to stop and talk about it because there is the biblical fact that we have been chosen, and then there is the biblical doctrine of election. And there's two different things. So um, this, is, this is kind of the second aside we're doing this morning. I think it's worth taking this time to do it, though. Um, what does it mean when the Bible says that we are elect? Or what does the Bible mean when it says that we are chosen or we are part of the elect? Um, we'll see here in the next couple of weeks, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter writes to them, you are a chosen people. Um, we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. This is Paul writing, and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose us for salvation. Um, we can look back into the Old Testament when we are looking at the people of Israel. Moses is speaking to them, and he says uh, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So out of anybody that God could have chosen, he chose the Israelites. Now, um, some, some of you are maybe thinking, preach it, Pastor Jeff. And others of you are thinking, I don't like the way that you're presenting this. And that's because there is a doctrine of election. And the doctrine of election speaks to how we were chosen, why we were chosen, when we were chosen. So the fact that we were chosen is, we see that all through the, the Bible, but the doctrine kind of fills in the meaning on that. Um, Albert Barnes says this, about this word, this Greek word, eklektos is, is the word, if, we wanna, if you want to write that down, if you like that kind of thing. Eklektos is the Greek word chosen. Um, by, that, by itself, that's all it means. This means you were picked, you were selected. Um, the, quest, the questions to the answer, where, when, why, who, for what purpose, those are things that get filled in as you read the context. So Albert Barnes says this, the words should be properly understood as applied to the act of choosing them, not to the purpose to choose them. The fact that God selected them to be his, not the doctrine that he would choose them. So this word chosen, this word elect, should be freely and gratefully used by all Christians, for it is a word in frequent use in the Bible, and there is nothing for which people should be more grateful than the fact that God has chosen them to, to salvation. So when we say that we have been chosen or we have been elected, it's a biblical fact. Like we have read, We've read several verses about that already this morning. Now, we can switch and talk about the doctrine of election, and that would give, fill in the, some of the blanks. Why were we chosen? How were we chosen? When were we chosen? And that leads to questions about God's role in salvation and man's role in salvation. So we have read several verses stating that God chooses man for salvation. Um, we talked about in Ephesians that um, already that we were saved by grace through faith, and I want to look at a couple other verses. Romans 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, so this doesn't say the chosen. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John three sixteen, of course, is a very familiar verse. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when I read these verses, and when you read these verses, we have to look at these as legitimate offers of salvation to everyone who would believe. So then you're like, okay, well, which, which, one are you gonna, which one is it going to be? Did God choose those we saved? Or does everyone have the, 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 the ability to hear the message and believe? Well, this, is a, this isn't the, the message for this morning. There's, there's lots there that we can dig into, but let's just suffice to say this. The Bible teaches both. And you say, well, you can't have it both ways, right? You, you can't have your cake and eat it too, they tell me. Let me ask you one more question and we'll move on. We got some married folks in here this morning? Peter and Megan? <laughs> so would it be fair, Peter, to say that you chose Megan, but Megan didn't choose you? Or the other way around, would it be fair, Megan, to say that you chose Peter, but he didn't choose you? So there, there has to be room for both because the Bible teaches on both of them. And so that's the doctrine of election, how all of that works. So there is a lot, of think, a lot to think about that in, in that realm, but I would just challenge you as, you as you're reading the scripture and you see that there's God's elect or God's chosen, what are those verses saying about it? Because the statement in itself that, that we are God's elect, that's all that means is that we were selected. So it's, it's the verses and it's the context that build that doctrine around it. All right, back to verse 2, though. We were chosen, because we're going to get a little bit of information about this doctrine of election in verse 2. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge. God knew who would be saved. Ephesians 1, verse 4, I don't think I gave that to Craig, but Ephesians 1, 4, again, that same line of thought... He chose us in him, God chose us in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. We already looked at 2 Thessalonians 2.13, and maybe we'll go back to it for a second. It says, God, God chose you, here in the middle, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. A lot of translations would put that as, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So we learn that God knew from the beginning, that we'd be saved. So when we read that, we should, be, we should be excited about that, right? Think about this. Before, before anything, before this world was here, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know, God had not started time. There's no earth. God had not said, let there be light. It's just the three of them. And he knew that we would be here today. God knew that we would be his children. It's not like God said, all right, is it, are you ready, guys? Right? Let's, a big bang. Let's see what happens. No, no, God knew that we would be here this morning. Um, I, was, I had lunch with Ron Smith a couple weeks ago, and he gave me this illustration. And I think it's, it's, it's worth thinking about this morning. There was a day, if you were in the printing business, there was a, a typesetter. Maybe they still are, but their job looks a lot different now. But this, this fellow here is preparing a book to be printed. So every word, he had to pick every letter of every word and, and line it up. And then he had to take each word and line it up to make each sentence, each sentence put together to form paragraphs, paragraphs put together to form pages. So each one of those rectangles is going to be a page in this book that this gentleman's getting ready to print. 
So once all the pages were together, he would stand back and he would look at it. He would be able to see the book from beginning to end. And, and this is, of course, no illustration is perfect, but think about God, the Father God, the Son God, the Holy Spirit, before he set things in motion. There he is. He's looking at it, and he can see the beginning, and he can see the end. Somewhere in the middle, here we are this morning. We're sitting there. And so when, what they would do here, when he had it ready to go, he'd turn that machine on, and it would, it, it would imprint onto the, onto the paper, and then he'd have that big paper, would all get folded and it'd get cut. And then you flip the pages to read the book one page at a time. Similarly, God was able to see somehow before everything got started, the beginning, he was able to see the end and everything in between. And somewhere in there, here, we were sitting here and he, he knew each of us by name. He knew that we would be his children. And so that's a great thing that we can uh, be encouraged by this morning. All right, let's look at this, continue to look at this. The chosen, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. We're, we're, we're watching the Trinity here. We're seeing the Trinity in this verse as being a part of our salvation. So, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. So, what is the, what is this sanctification? It's just a big, big religious word, right? What does it mean? It just means to be made holy. So the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us holy. First at salvation, we call it our justification, or we're declared that we are righteous before God. We, we, we looked at in Ephesians chapter 2 that while we were dead in our sins, we were saved, and God declared us righteous. Part of that's because the Spirit sanctified us, made us holy. And yet, while that might be our position, holy and righteous before God, I mean, you, you woke up this morning, right? Maybe not so holy, maybe not so righteous, right? But the, the Spirit, the Bible teaches, works on us, and that's a continual process of sanctification. As we live our lives and as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we are becoming more and more like God. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. And so this is the ongoing process of our sanctification. So this is um, God the Father, according to His foreknowledge, According to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are saved. Second um, Thessalonians 2.13, we'll go back there again, uh, just to continue this thought, um, starting again, part, kind of partway through, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, or God chose you from the beginning for salvation. And look at the, the we were talking about what's God's role in salvation, what's man's role in salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Right? We've, we saw in Ephesians, we are saved by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so this verse here, again, putting these two ideas together, that, that the Spirit of God's at work in our salvation process, and yet there's this call to believe at the same time. All right, so we see God the Father in our salvation. Verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit at work in our salvation. Um, and let's read it again. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that in a second. And for sprinkling with his blood. So here's the role of Jesus in our salvation. His shed blood is what cleanses our sins. Um, we, you know, as we read our Bible, we, we see this come up 
uh, over and over again. We sing about this. We celebrate the fact that because of Jesus' death on the cross and his shed blood that we can have a relationship with him. Um, a verse comes to mind, Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So again, it's God's grace. We don't deserve it, but he saves us. But the redemption comes through his blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So as, as Christians, especially in the year 2020, we look back, we read our Bible, we have an understanding of that. For some of these, uh, some of the readers of the letter of 1 Peter, if they were a Jewish reader, this is a reality that they would have experienced from their youth in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which these Jewish believers would have participated in, they were continually bringing sacrifices to the priests to be sacrificed. And that blood would be sprinkled on the altar for um, the forgiveness of the sins that they had committed. The great difference is that Jesus was a one-time sacrifice. We don't keep going back to the altar. Jesus died once for all. And so when Jesus, we say Jesus washed away our sins with his blood, that was a one-time act. It's not something we have to go back to over and over again. Um, but I want to look back just even, even further to Exodus chapter 24, because the Jewish readers of 1 Peter would have understood this system, and they would have understood all the way back to Exodus when God had called the people of Israel. He said, you will be my chosen people. We read it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, um, that God was going to be, or excuse me, the Israelites was going to be God's special, special possession. He chose them out of all the people of the earth. He brought them out of Egypt, and he gave them the law. And then Moses, in Exodus chapter 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So up until this point, they have not... Um, you talk about the Mosaic Covenant that God gave the law and, the, and, and Israel entered into a covenant with God. At this point, Israel has not entered into that covenant with God yet. So God had chosen them. He pulled them out of Egypt. But the Israelites still had this choice to make. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And these Jewish uh, believers would, would have remembered you know, the sacrifices they had made or brought to the priests that the priests had made on their behalf, put the, the blood on the altar. But at this first uh, time, when they were ratifying the covenant with the Lord, uh, let's read here what happens next. Moses took the book of the covenant, he read it again in the hearing of all the people, and the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And so to kind of seal the deal, so to speak, um, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people, perhaps, you know, dipped a branch in it and, and sprinkled them, because there's hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people or more. And so he, he took the blood, he threw it on the people and said, behold, 
the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the, the Jewish people would have this understanding what, that when they came into a covenant relationship with God through the Mosaic covenant, that Moses sprinkled the blood of these animals onto them. And so when they read here that, um, they, that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God with the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus, and with the sprinkling of his blood, they, they would recognize that in the same way that the forgiveness of sins was given in the Old Testament with the sprinkling of blood, that this was, when, when they were sprinkled with Jesus' blood, this was for the forgiveness of their sins. So it had a great and rich meaning for these Jewish believers. So we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And it's really a, kind of a neat picture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all at work in our salvation. And we see, what, we see one more thing here that I said we skipped over. For obedience to Jesus Christ. Now there might be debate over why we were chosen, how we were chosen, for what purpose we were chosen. But there's some things that we can really come together on here when we talk about that we are the chosen people of God. And in many passages, we are given a purpose for why we were chosen to salvation. And this is one of them, for obedience to Jesus Christ. So God knew from the beginning who would be saved. The Spirit sanctifies us and it continues to sanctify us, to make us holy. We are washed, we are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus all so that we can be obedient to him. And we, we sometimes think of obedience as kind of a drudgery or kind of a, um, something I have to do instead of something that we get to do because of what God's done for us. Some of the other things that uh, if, if, we were, if we were reading through the New Testament, we would see, we see here in 1 Peter that the elect are to be obedient to Christ. In uh, Ephesians Chapter 2 talks about how God has, for those that are saved, God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about that the chosen should proclaim the praises of God who called us out of darkness. We are to be conformed to the image of his Son. Ephesians says that the elect are to walk holy and blameless before him. Colossians says that the chosen should be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving as God has forgiven us. So we can come together on these things for sure. We can come together on two things. The Bible states clearly that God chooses for salvation. The Bible states clearly some of the reasons why is so that we can be obedient, so that we can be kind, we can be gentle, we can forgive, we can show compassion, we can become uh, holy and walk blameless before him. Some of the other things we can talk about, we would call that a family discussion, right? It doesn't mean we're not in the family, it just means we don't see it exactly the same way. So this is, the, these, uh, hopefully these first two verses are an encouragement to us this morning. Verse 2 closes this way, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So these are a couple of greetings. Grace would be, was kind of like, sort of like the typical Greek greeting. Uh, we know peace or shalom would be the typical Hebrew greeting between two Jewish people. 
So Paul, or excuse me, Peter is saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we have, we have this understanding that God chose us before the creation of the world that we would be made holy by his spirit. Before God completely at our salvation, but also in a continual sense as we become more and more like Jesus. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus, and we are called to obedience to Jesus Christ. And he closes this introduction by saying, with goodwill, loving kindness, favor, tranquility, harmony, be abounding in your life. And that's, that's a great way for us to close this morning. As we leave here this morning, we should be taking grace and peace into the community because of what God's done in our lives, because of what he's doing in our lives. It, yes, it's an act of obedience, but it is because of the great things that he has done in us that we can do anything, that he can do those things through us. And we can take, um, I guess, satisfaction, really, or have, see contentment that we can, we can go and we can make a difference because what he's done in our lives. So um, let me pray with you this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you just for this, just this short verse that just allows us to see the work of the Trinity in our salvation. Lord, I pray that if there would be someone here this morning that really has never uh, made a decision, they've never acknowledged the fact that they're dead in their sins, uh, they've never placed their faith in you, Lord, they've never experienced the, your grace and your love and, and your mercy in their lives. Lord, I pray that they would take this time this morning to find out what that means, that they would uh, talk to someone beside them or, or with uh, Kathy up front here this morning or one of the pastors, Lord, to we would take the time to understand what your grace is, is in our lives. Lord, as a, as a result of you choosing us, as a result of you sanctifying us, as a result of you washing away of our sins, Lord, we have the opportunity now to go out and be obedient to you. Lord, I pray that as a result of our obedience in our homes, uh, in our community, in our workplace, in the schools, uh, that grace and peace will be multiplied. Lord, and that we would recognize that it was a re it's a result of your work in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would be uh, making a difference. Lord, I ask that we would be yielded and submitted to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.